The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Catholics believe, I'm Father William Jenkins, uh, priest in charge at Immaculate Conception Church and Academy here in Norwood, Ohio, uh, priest of the Society of St. Pius V. There's an interview, uh, another interview of Francis I, uh, Bergoglio, that has come out recently. In fact, this interview was granted by La Croix, the Cross. Uh, the interview was conducted by Guillaume Goubert and Sebastien Maillard in Rome on May 17th of this year. And uh, the interview is very interesting, and it, it requires comment. So I thought I'd go through and uh, look at the questions that were proposed to Francis and uh, take a look line by line at some of his answers here. I think they're very revealing about his thinking, uh, and um, I think it's important that people know uh, the thinking of this of this man, lest they fall into the trap of, of modernist, lest they fall into the trap of modernism. The first question proposed uh, in the article following the interview is this: In your speeches in Europe, you refer to the roots of the continent without ever describing them as Christian. Rather, you define European identity as dynamic and multicultured, multicultural. In your view, is the expression Christian roots inappropriate for Europe? And Francis responds, we need to speak of roots in the plural because there are so many. In this case, when I hear talk of the Christian roots of Europe, I sometimes dread the tone which can seem triumphalist or even vengeful, and then takes on colonialist overtones. John Paul II, however, spoke about it in a tranquil manner, he says. Uh, this is, uh, again, uh, an indication of Francis's uh, just uh, reflexive reaction uh, to anything that smacks of the triumph of Christ in the world than anything that uh, is redolent of our faith having power and influence in the world. That is the traditional faith. He reacts badly against the idea. Sad to say, he minimizes the Christian roots of Europe, uh, basically reducing it to just one of several, one of many roots, men of many influences in the formation of Europe. And yet, the fact is, contrary to what Francis is saying, that Christendom really took root in Europe. And it is the Church herself that formed Europe as Christian Europe. The very nations of Europe were formed from the converted barbarian invading tribes. For Francis to be ignorant of this or to minimize it is very sad, very misleading, very uh, unfortunate and very dangerous. 
Francis continues, yes, Europe has Christian roots, and it is Christianity's responsibility to water those roots. But this must be done in a spirit of service, in the washing, as in the washing of the feet. Christianity's duty to Europe is one of service. He uh, says that uh, the, like, the simile that he uses here is that Christianity must be on its feet washing the feet of Europeans or the European nations, the European cultures, as Christ was washing the feet of the apostles at the Last Supper. In other words, he says, service and the gift of life. It must not become a colonial enterprise. Well, my dear man, there is no talk here about a colonial enterprise of the church colonizing Europe. That is absurd in light of true history. The church did not colonize Europe. Actually, the, the, the entirety of the, the, uh, the continent was invaded, as it were, a cauldron of invasion of barbarian tribes who were seeking plunder. They saw the opportunity when Constantine moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople. They saw that uh, the West had been largely abandoned to its fate, that when the military and economic and basically social uh, power of the empire centering around the emperor was uh, well, but basically vacated from Rome. And uh, so the barbarians found that they could uh, nibble on the edges of the empire, and they found they could, they could actually invade en masse. It was the popes who brought order. It was the popes who actually represented not only order within religion, but order within society, civil order as well, in the absence of the emperor, emperor and the imperial authority, and with the barbarian invasions. It was the influence of the popes and the Catholic princesses and queens whom these barbarians married who converted them to the Catholic faith. These tribes then settled, became cultures, truly in the true sense of the word, Christian cultures, Francis. And uh, the invaders actually were the ones then who embraced Christianity embraced Catholicism with a wholeheartedness. And uh, this, we're going to refer back to this later with another answer that Francis gives, uh, another answer again equally foolish and false. Uh, the fact is, though, if he wants to, number one, reduce Christianity to one of multiple influences over Europe, implying that they're all quite legitimate, and all basically equal. And then he goes on in the next paragraph to say, but Christianity's role is to be at the service of Europe and to wash the feet of Europe. Okay? In other words, he implies subservience. That's what he does. Our Lord at the Last Supper washed the apostles' feet as an example to them of what they should do for each other. Okay? He wasn't saying that the church must adopt that, that role always and everywhere, and only that role. When our Lord sent the church out, in the person of the apostles, at the ascension, he commanded them to teach the nations, 
to instruct them to observe the moral law that Christ had taught, to sanctify them by the power of the sacraments. This is not just getting on one's hands and knees and serving and washing feet. This is much more than that. To reduce the church's role, then, to this, this the one act of our Lord at the Last Supper, and to ignore all the other things that our Lord himself did, when he said, I am your Lord, I am your master. He made that very clear. And uh, he, he demanded that obedience. He, he said that even th that obedience is a matter of love, and that love for him is what makes the Father, again, love us as well. So it's all tied together in this, the fact that the church was given authority. She's not just there as a slave girl in order to serve the nations of the world with all their multiculturals. Uh, again, Francis um, is giving a very, very wrong message here, as is his want, I'm afraid. Um, the questioners then go on and point out, on April 16th, you made a powerful gesture by bringing back the refugees from Lesbos to Rome. However, does Europe have the capacity to accept so many migrants? Here's how Francis uh, responds to this. He says, This is a fair and responsible question because one cannot open the gates wide unreasonably. However, the deeper question, so now he's actually deflecting the question to something deeper. He says, Why there are so many migrants now? When I went to Lampedusa three years ago, this phenomenon had already started. So now Francis is going to answer why there are so many migrants, you see. And uh, he never actually answers the question about Europe's capacity to accept, except to say Europe has to expand its capacity to accept. But let's, let's see what he says about why the migrants now. He says, the initial problems are the wars in the Middle East and in Africa, as well as the underdevelopment of the African continent, which causes hunger. Okay, now here he should really stop and do a reality check on the wars in the Middle East and the wars in Africa and ascribe the basis of these wars to Islam, <clears throat> uh, the conflicts between the Sunnis and the Shiites, uh, the, the conflicts within Islam, and in Afri Africa, paganism. That this is the, these are the foundations of these wars. Um, he goes on to say, if there are wars, it is because there exist arms manufacturers, which can be justified for defensive purposes, and above all, arms traffickers. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. If there are wars, it is because there exist arms traffickers. Okay. Well, before there were arms, before there were arms traffickers, were there no wars? What caused those wars then? Again, is he not like these gun control people here in the United States saying, well, it's the weapons. <clears throat> the weapons are causing the murders. The weapons are causing the wars. Not what's in man. Not what's in the heart of man. Rather, the instruments. That's what's causing men to be bad. That's what's causing men to attack each other and actually go to war. Well, did they not fight with spears? Did they not fight, not fight with all manner of weapons? Have mankind not been fighting uh, with weapons of all kinds over all the centuries from clubs and rocks? 
We, we invented war when we invented guns. This is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. And yet you can see people sitting, sitting there mindlessly nodding at what he's saying here, because he is saying it. He goes on to say, if there is so much unemployment, it is because of a lack of investment capital. He then goes, he goes on to say, after saying that it is because of the arms tra traffickers that we have wars, he goes on to say it is unemployment that is causing the wars. Okay? Uh, as though those in, in, uh, in the Middle East and those in Africa are fighting because they're unemployed. That's the problem. They have no employment. This, again, is absurd. Um, we know why the Sunnis and the Shiites attack each other. Uh, savagely when they're not attacking us. And we know why the various tribes of Africa attack each other as they've been attacking each other for thousands of years now. Um, and it is not because of unemployment. Um, it is not because of social stresses today. It is because of something deep-rooted in humanity known as original sin. This is the problem. Francis talks, it's because, he says, wars are caused by the lack of capital investment capable of providing employment. So then he gets to his central point again. It's greed. It's idolatry of money that is causing these wars. Grasping for straws, like a good Marxist. That's exactly what Marx said. He ultimately reduced all of this conflict to capitalism and uh, to greed, <clears throat> the profit incentive, Okay. And so he, he reduced it all, reduced it all to free markets and allowing competition in the market. Francis, again, always uh, knee-jerk, in a knee-jerk fashion, um, he, he defaults to that message. And that is the message of Karl Marx. All of this evil is caused by this economic disparity. And um, that you resolve that and you have actually created a kind of paradise here on earth. The great, perfect, communist world who produces the great communist man. The man, the worker. Okay. So he says here, more generally, this raises the question of a world economic system that has descended into the idolatry of money. The great majority of humanity's wealth has fallen into the hands of a minority of the population. Now, is this true? Yes, it is true. It is true. <clears throat> and could that be an evil? It certainly could be an evil, yes. Is that causing all of these social ills? Not necessarily. People are reveling in the inventions and the quality of life that they claim to enjoy, all of the toys they have, and so on. There are those who abuse their economic power to enslave. There's no doubt about it. But it has always been this way. It doesn't make it right, but it has always been this way. But to use this now as an argument for Marxism and to say this is the fundamental problem is wrong. St. Paul said the love of money is the source, the foundation of all evil. That is true. The love of money, St. Paul says, is exactly that. But the fact is that capitalism itself, as a means of development of the resources of the world, is in itself indifferent, except for the fact that it is a very good method. Not that it because it necessarily uh, uh, appeals to greed, uh, 
Not because capitalists must be greedy and capitalists must be motivated by greed to be capitalists. There are many people in the world who are motivated by no, no other, other goal than to provide for their families, than to make progress, than to better their circumstances in life. And nothing, no system favors that as much as capitalism. For the individual to be able to better his own circumstances in life by his own initiative, his hard work, his ingenuity. This is what has brought in the world the wave of, of, of inventiveness and then the wave of inventiveness to remedies the evils brought by early inventions. We're trying to remedy the byproducts, the, the evils that come from the development of some of the, the goods that we have. We're constantly trying to improve the situation. Insofar as capitalism as a system is a means of actually doing that, allowing the individual to improve his lot in life, to get ahead in the world, as it were, and for his ingenuity and hard work to be rewarded, that is not a bad thing at all. It is a good thing. If there's anything that kills ingenuity, if there's anything that destroys incentive, and therefore it destroys uh, motivation in the workplace, it is socialism. It amazes me to hear people say these businesses are so greedy, <clears throat> they are um, basically imposing a form of new slavery on their workers. Personally, I think today they are because they have lost the influence of the faith from the top down and from the bottom up too. From the workers up to management, from the management down to the workers, they have been, the, the, the workplace has been, as it were, um, has been purged of the Christian, of the Catholic uh, faith and morality, deliberately so. And this is what you get. You get laissez-faire capitalism, you get mercantilism, you get the point where the goods and the workers are basically on the same level, where the workers are treated as though they're just another product or just another means of production. This is happening in our society. It is the result of socialism. It is a result of government and business working so closely together, being so intertwined in their interests, mutual interests, protecting each other, fostering each other, that essentially you have a socialist society where the control of production, of the necessities of life, is in the hands of businesses that are, that are dominated by political interests. When you put these two together, when business is actually uh, working hand-in-glove with politicians, so-called government, with politicians, then you have socialism. And we have it now. And this is why we see what we see now. Why uh, the, the vast, vast majority of the people who are actually laboring here in this country to provide a living for themselves are being just wrung out by government and business just working together to, to foster each other, to promote each other. The same individuals, the cabal of individuals at the top in both business and government. It amazes me to hear people say, this business is so evil. It's all motivated by greed because there are a bunch of capitalists here. This is capitalism, they say. And therefore, greed is necessarily the incentive to make a profit. <clears throat> they make it at everybody else's expense, ignoring the fact that capitalism has enriched itself 
over time entire populations and raise them out of poverty. But nonetheless, they say we've got to get the control of the economy out of the hands of businessmen and uh, make sure that the government has the control. And well, wait a minute, I say to them, just a minute, the government, what is the government? Who is the government? The government are the very people you're denouncing as politicians. The government are the very people you are loudly uh, complaining about every election and how corrupt they are and how selfish they are and how greedy they are. And you, you are saying that we have to take the, the control of the economy of our nation, of the world, out of the hands of the greedy <clears throat> a businessman and put it in the hands of the greedy politicians. And that's going to solve our problems. And I say to them, you are really missing uh, something. You're being irrational in this. You're just sloganeering. You're falling into the pit of the slogans. Uh, as though we have to choose between the greed of the politicians and the greed of the businessmen. And I'll pull one or the other. But what good does that do if they're, if they're w w walking in lockstep with each other and they're, they're, wash they're scratching each other's backs all the time? This is exactly what's happening with big business and big government. And you can't get any bigger government than when it's government locked with big business. And it has the power of government behind it. So uh, I'm afraid Francis is promoting this whole thing. The, the popes of the Novus Ordo have been doing this all along. They've been calling for, going back to John the 23rd already, at the time of Vatican II, saying government has to control. Governments have to, there has to be a world government even, a world government that controls the economies of the world. It has real enforcement power. Um, this, this is a, a, a formula for the one world government. This is a formula for what we read about in the book of the Apocalypse, that uh, the Antichrist will have such control over all the lives of all the people in the world, what they eat, whether they eat, where they live, what they live in, if they have anything to live in, uh, he will control this, that they will either be able to bind or sell. Individual people around the world will not be allowed able to buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. Now, you can't find a tyranny more absolute than that. And yet, we find the popes of the Novus Ordo are pressing that idea, that message, to the would-be Catholic people of the world today. It's, it's frightening, and, uh, and I would say it is spiritually criminal. But in any case, um, now Francis does get to address, to some extent, the question that was asked him. Does Europe have the capacity to accept so many migrants? I guess implied in here is the question, can Europe accept so many migrants and remain Europe? Uh, or will Europe, as we know it, go under and become something else in accepting so many migrants? But look at what Francis says here. <clears throat> Coming back to the migrant issue, the worst form of welcome is to ghettoize them. Ghettoize? Who's ghettoizing them? They are ghettoizing themselves. Yes, I mean, they stay in certain camps until they can be processed because they're illegals. 
But even then, they're not really controlled. If they had the power to develop an economy and a culture of their own, um, they would. We have the camps that were set up for the refugees uh, from World War II, uh, from Slovenia, for example. I, I, I know refugees uh, of that time who actually were in the camps uh, set up by the Allies for the Slovenians, among others, after World War II. They arrived with the clothes on their back, that's it. They set up businesses, economies, services for each other in those camps, starting with practically nothing. They did this because they were enterprising and they had the Catholic culture to motivate them. They basically reestablished the old guild system. But you look at these camps of the Muslims uh, in, uh, in Palestine and so on, what development have they done? What have they done but preyed on each other? This is what they do. This is Islam. They cannot seem to organize themselves into a real society. And if you have all these immigrants fleeing, what are they fleeing from? They're fleeing from Islam. That's what they're running from. But they're bringing Islam with them. It's like they're fleeing from a plague and they're bringing the plague with them. And so they're coming to Europe and they're bringing this. And again, the contributing nothing, contributing nothing to the society in which they come. They come looking for economic opportunity that they can't find in their own countries. They come looking for terrorist opportunities because they're sent by the terrorist organizations in their own countries. They're radicalized, as they call them. Now, they come because they're escaping from the, from the hellish existence in their own Muslim countries, under their own Muslim rulers. That's what they're doing. But they're bringing Sharia law with them. And as soon as they get into power, as soon as they get sufficient numbers, they're going to start using our own institutions to impose Sharia law upon us. Now here, Francis talks about the election of a Muslim... Pakistani, Sadiq Khan, as the new mayor of London. 40% of the people, the electorate there, are non-British non people. They're non-British citizens. They're non-British born, let's put it that way. 40% of the electorate. No wonder. And so the new mayor of London is a Muslim. He took his oath of office, I guess on the Quran, in a cathedral. Oh, really? A Christian cathedral. Not in a Bible, you can be sure of that. And he will undoubtedly meet the Queen, Francis says. This illustrates the need for Europe to rediscover its capacity to integrate. What does that mean? What illustrates the need for Europe to rediscover its capacity to integrate? Does this mean that Sadiq Khan has now been integrated into European society? Does this mean that Sadiq Khan is integrated into Christian society? Again, it's absurd. It becomes even more absurd in the next statement Francis makes. I am thinking here of Pope Gregory the Great. Editor puts in here that he was Pope from 590 to 604, who negotiated with the people known as barbarians, who were subsequently integrated. 
This integration is all the more necessary today, since as a result of selfish search for well-being, Europe has experienced the grave problem of a declining birth rate. A demographic emptiness is developing. In France, at least, this trend is less marked because of family-oriented policies. Now, but, but think of what he just said here. Again, he's scary. His thinking is scary. He talks about Pope Gregory the Great, about the year 600, negotiating with, with the barbarian peoples and integrating them into the, into the society of Europe. I would say, wait a minute here. Europe was not formed yet. It was in the very infancy of its formation. You had the Lombards who had invaded northern Italy and streamed into central Italy. The Franks <clears throat> were actually uh, moving into uh, the, what, the remains of the Western Empire, okay, uh, the Continental Empire. Okay, They were not yet <clears throat> part of Europe. They were not yet a Christian nation or a European nation. They were barbarians. They were still barbarian tribes. Uh, you had the Alemanni, you had all these other barbarian tribes. Did the Pope negotiate with him? Did he negotiate with, uh, with Attila? Did Leo the, 13th, the uh, Leo the First negotiate with Attila when Attila was coming to sack Rome? Um, no. He didn't negotiate with Attila. The only way you could deal with Attila was by a show of force. And when Attila withdrew, he said it was because he saw two figures on either side of Pope Leo brandishing swords, aiming them at him and, and, and indicating to him that if he dared cross that line and attack Rome, that he would fall victim. And that is why Attila said he withdrew, not because he had a great change of heart and decided, I think I'll become European. He had no intention of integrating. What he did was pull back north, went back north of what we now know as Italy, where the remains of, of his barbarian hordes were decimated by disease. His was just one of multiple waves, successive waves of savages pouring out of the steppes of central Russia, continually throughout history, bringing in. The Khazars are among, among them. They were one of these waves that came from the steppes of, of central Russia, moving westward and consuming everything on the way butchering everything in their path. Uh, Genghis Khan and so many others right on down the line. Right? They uh, study European history. You see what they had to deal with, the battering ram of, of barbarianism and paganism coming from the East they had to deal with. Anyway, they were able to do it because they were formed by the church into a solid, cohesive society, which we know as Christendom. And as long as they understood themselves to be Christendom, they had the power to resist the, such, such apparently overwhelming enemies because they had a supernatural power of their faith strengthening them. Now they don't have that anymore because the Novus Ordo has destroyed this in them. And now they are just sitting ducks for every attacker, every disease. Their immune system has been destroyed deliberately. So in any case... Uh, this idea of Gregory negotiating with the Lombards, well, he, he did talk to them, <laughs> no doubt about them, no doubt about it, that's true. Uh, 
They were among the fiercest enemies the church faced, and they were right at a doorstep there in central Italy. Uh, but the fact is, they, they were converted to the faith. It was conversion. He doesn't call it a conversion. You'd never call it conversion. Oh, no, that would be terrible. Because actually, conversion implies that they accept your values as superior to the values they have. That they accept your faith as superior to the faith or faithlessness they have. And they accept this because they consider it to be an improvement, a betterment, a good, superior to what they have. So you can't use the word conversion here. No, no. Integration. They're integrated somehow. But what were they integrated into? The only way we can say that they were integrated into anything, the Lombards, was accepting the faith, their conversion to the Catholic faith. The very Lombardy in Italy now is the area that was occupied by them. And uh, they were the Longbeards, the, long, lo, the Lombards, we call them today, the Longbeards who invaded from the north. And uh, yes, many, they did accept the Catholic faith. And they were a very uh, powerful element of Christendom for many, many, well, for centuries, not just many years, for centuries. It was their conversion that made the difference. But Francis will not talk about that. He will not mention that. Because he doesn't want to raise the specter of colonialism or triumphalism. And so he prefers to lie by omission. He prefers to lie by prevarication. He prefers that. Because he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers of those who are enemies of Christ. Oh no, can't ruffle any feathers of those who are enemies of Christ. That would be inconscionable and acceptable. Um, in any case, uh, so the fantasy of Francis continues. You don't only have the Francis effect, you have the Francis fantasy driving all of this. Uh, the question is, go on and ask the question, the fear of accepting migrants is partly based on a fear of Islam. In your view, is the fear that this religion sparks in Europe justified? Francis goes on to say, well, this is really not a fear of Islam so much as it is a fear of ISIS. Okay, Here's what he says. And again, I mean, this is almost so, so awful that I, I have a hard time even saying it. But here's what he says. Today, I don't think that there is a fear of Islam as such, but of ISIS and its war of conquest, which is partly drawn from Islam. It is true that the idea of conquest is inherent in the soul of Islam. Amazing that he would make that concession, but listen to what he says next. However, it is also possible to interpret the objective in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus sends his disciples to all nations in terms of the same idea of conquest. This is incredible. This is supposed to be a vicar of Christ expressing this thought. It's possible, as though he says it's, it's a possible legitimate interpretation to consider the command of Christ to his apostles going there. Uh, well, our Lord says, all power on heaven and earth is given to me. Francis doesn't mention that, though. And he tells his apostles, our Lord says the apostles go forth, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and instructing them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. 
that he is, says that this can be equated somehow legitimately with the message of Muhammad, with the command of conquest of the world by the followers of Muhammad. This is a blasphemy to suggest that there is such a possible legitimate interpretation of our Lord's words. He's going to make these two somehow equivalent and by some interpretation. And he's going to legitimize Islam's or minimize Islam's, Muhammad's call for conquest. The cause of conquest by the caliphs, the cause of conquest by the sultans over the, over the centuries. He's going to somehow minimize or legitimize those. Saying there's some sort of equivalence here. This is outrageous. It is monstrous. And this is what he says. Now one can parse his words all you want. You can spin this in a way you want. The message here is the, the message is here. There's no question. The message is there. Okay. It's in Francis' mind, even if he hasn't expressed it explicitly, it's there. Because he does it over and over again. Once again, he takes the question and he turns it. In the face of Islamic terrorism, it would therefore be better to question ourselves. Okay, remember how we responded to the question of why migrants are coming now? Well, let's ask ourselves, why is this happening? Okay, and what are we doing about it? Right? Are we causing this? Maybe it's because of us that we have all these migrants in the first place. Okay, now he's doing the same thing here. With regard to Islamic terrorism, it would be better to question ourselves about the way in an overly Western model of democracy has been exported to countries such as Iraq. In other words, were they aggressors now? An overly Western model of democracy has been exported to countries such as Iraq, where a strong government previously existed. Yeah, a strong government previously existed. That's right, a tyrant, a dictator, right? And so blame us for... Uh, thinking that these people <coughs> are capable of democracy and governing themselves. We should have known better because our own founding fathers, whom we're not paying any attention to these days, it seems, our own founding, founding, founding fathers say only a moral people can rule themselves. So I agree in that sense that for us to think we're going to export democracy is some sort of a uh, of a commodity, we're going to export democracy the way we export, let's say, rolling. Uh, uh, we we export rock and roll, uh, the way we export uh, iPads and and uh, and and all the rest of the stuff that we're marketing all over the world today. That that is absurd and it is suicidal um, to think we're going to export democracy as some form of cultural uh, phenomenon. Only a moral people can govern themselves. Immoral people need to be governed by a tyrant in a prison society. They have to be kept as prisoners, protected from each other and from themselves. This is a result of immorality in a society. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's evil. I'm saying it's one evil begetting another. And immorality in the population 
meaning that what rises out of that population is going to be the worst of all the evils, the most evil of all people in an immoral society is going to become the ruler, the most ruthless, the most vicious, the most cruel, they will rise to the top in an immoral society, in a society of immoral people. And that, that was a breeding ground for tyranny. And unfortunately, in Islam, I'm afraid this is what you're always going to find. You're always going to find that they gravitate toward tyrannies, they gravitate toward dictatorships, they gravitate toward sultans, they gravitate toward caliphs, because this is the culture. But Francis is blaming us for trying to export an overly Western model of democracy, and we're trying to somehow impose that on, on these people. So they had a strong government before, yeah, right, uh, a vicious dictatorship, right? And we disturbed that. He even says, look at, look at Libya, not just Iraq, but look at Libya, he says. A tribal structure exists. How are we exporting our culture as though it's a form of our exporting our culture to them? and infringing upon and even dominating their culture. Again, it's a form of colonialism. We're the guilty ones here. We have provoked this backlash as though we deserve it. Francis quotes a Libyan who said recently to him, we used to have one Gaddafi, now we have 50. Okay. Uh, I've got news for you. Islamic societies always have a Gaddafi, 50 Gaddafis, a thousand Gaddafis, a million Gaddafis, any one of them ready to become a Gaddafi. And inevitably, one of them will, because in Islamic societies will always gravitate toward dictatorships. It's the nature of the society. It's the nature of the culture. And it's not our fault, okay? It's not the fault of Christendom. It's not the fault of the West, at least not the Christian West, that's for sure. We've been fighting for our lives to fend them off, to prevent them from turning us into dictatorships. Unfortunately, we're losing that battle here in the United States of America, it seems. In any case, uh, but you see a pattern with Francis that he takes a question, turns it around to say, okay, how are we the problem here? Meaning Christians. He asks this question, uh, the, the interviewer has asked this question, the significance of Islam in France today, like the nation's Christian historical foundation, raises recurring questions concerning the place of religion in the public arena. How would you characterize a positive form of laicity? Remember, Francis is always condemning clericalism. That is, well, having clergy, basically having clergy run the church. Our Lord had his apostles, okay, and he had ordained them at the Last Supper. He made them his priests. He made them the uh, antecedents of his bishops, okay, who succeeded from them. And he made Peter his initial vicar on earth, a pope, okay? Christ did this. Francis is condemning this structure in the church. Clericalism, no. He says this is a place for priests, but they're there to serve, not to govern, not to rule. They're there to serve. Uh, rather, uh, we need uh, a laity. We need the laity to uh, function in their proper order and fulfill their proper role. Francis believes they need more and more influence in the church. Here's what Francis says here. 
Contrary to the Catholic teaching, her social doctrine for centuries, contrary to the, uh, the, the encyclical Apostolic Curie, Apostolic Curie of Papias IX, who actually condemns this error as contrary to the teaching of the sacred scriptures, the traditions of the church, and the fathers of the church, which would make it heresy, actually. Contrary to all of that, Francis says this, states must be secular. That is to say, they must not recognize any religion. Now, this is the man who's supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, who's supposed to be the head of what we consider to be the true religion, established by the one true son of the one true God, established by the one true savior of the world. This is the man who was the spokesman, supposedly, for Christ. And this is what he's saying. And he's not speaking for Christ, and he's not speaking for the Catholic Church in this at all. States themselves are, are as much creatures of God as they are, as are the individual men who make up the societies. Christ made us to be social. He made us to band together in villages, in neighborhoods, in tribes, as it were. We always have by nature. In cities, in nations. Christ himself, the Son of God, as our creator, as the Father and the Son, also God, our creator, has made us this way. If God is the God of individual human beings, but when they band together in society, he has no divine powers or authority over those societies, then he's not God. Pure and simple. They've just dethroned him. Individually have your opinions. When you get together to make decisions as a society, ignore God. He has nothing to do with this. Don't let him have any influence over how society runs itself, how society governs itself. We see the hell that that creates here on earth. Francis wants all states to be secular. Okay? He says confessional states always end badly. Excuse me? Excuse me? What about the non-confessional states, okay? Have there even been such things? Isn't the, the common faith, the common uh, religious practice that binds the people together, isn't it a fact that when they lose that, that the societies end badly? When they lose that bond? Francis, again, is telling you the opposite of the truth here. Um... He says that, that it goes against the grain of history to have a confessional state. I'm sorry, Francis, but I don't know what planet you've been on all this time. But I'm sorry, and the planet Earth here, it is that bond of a common philosophy and a common religious belief, which has been the cohesiveness that has been at the root of forming this society to begin with and holding it together as long as it did. And when it has lost that common bond, it lost its, its very, uh, the purpose that was holding it together. It lost the fabric that was holding it together. Um, the, um, he is the one going against the grain of society. But he says confessional states always end badly. Yeah, they end badly when they lose their confession. He talks about a version of laicity in France after the French Revolution that is not good. But he has also condemned clericalism at the same time. So, um, he, he here turns this into an argument for freedom of religion. So here we have a question that has to do with uh, 
the France itself and its Christian historical foundation and the expression of a contrary of, of faiths, multiple different faiths, uh, faiths contrary to Christianity, expressing themselves, Francis is all in favor of it. He said it must be done. He, he actually is, without saying so, hearkening back to the last document of Vatican II, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, which even went so far as to say that the gospel itself, the, the gospel teaches that this is the correct form of society where there is a religious uh, liberty, where not only is there a lack, uh, one cannot be uh, constrained to uh, conform to a religion he doesn't believe in, but one cannot even be restrained from practicing his, practicing his religion, whatever it may be. And uh, that's, that is something that is not in the gospel. As Monsignor Lefebvre himself said, this is implicitly heretical. Uh, I think one could make an argument that it is explicitly so, frankly, myself. But Monsignor Lefebvre did state clearly to me uh, more than once that that was implicitly heretical to say that. So uh, Francis is all, all in favor of it. This is uh, his creed here. He said the problem with uh, the, the French Revolution in this exaggerated laicity, he says, now get this, is the problem of considering religions as subcultures rather than as fully-fledged cultures in their own right. He's saying the various religions in the world are not just subcultures of societies, they are fully formed cultures of their own. Okay? This is a very important part of the whole mix when he talks about enculturation and enculturating the liturgy, because for him, culture, enculturation involves bringing in the religious forms then, because those are fully formed cultures. And so uh, you don't want to destroy those cultures, you want to integrate them into, into what? The one world religion? You want to integrate them into their lit your liturgy, Francis? Yes, you do. Your Novus Ordo Popes has been doing this for years and years now. There's your inculturation, all right. The destruction of the Mass. The destruction of the sacraments. The destruction of Christian worship. Um, he's expressing the very principles behind all of these things. In any case, um, he then says something that would be perfect out of the mouth of Loisy or, um, or Tiro, the leaders of the modernists in Europe back in the early 1900s. In expression, he says that um, France needs to take a step forward on this issue in order to accept that openness to transcendence is a right for everyone. Openness to transcendence. Uh, read the encyclical of Pope Pius X, St. Pius X on modernism, condemning the errors of the modernists. And uh, you find uh, St. Pius X talking about the modernists uh, taking the rise of faith from the experience of the divine in the individual life. The experience, the personal experience of the divine within in the individual life, experiencing this, this transcendence. This is really sick. 
in a secular setting, this is a question now, in a secular setting, how should Catholics defend their concerns on societal issues such as euthanasia or same-sex marriage? And Francis just says, once a law has been adopted, the state must also respect people's consciences. He's just saying that, well, once the state adopts such a law, then it has to respect the fact that there are people who don't, who don't believe in these things and must somehow allow for them. But wait, wait a minute. What about Francis saying this is criminal to approve this horrible perversion and this will be the undoing of society? Why doesn't he say that? Just that, as though, as though Parliament or any society, any legislature has the right to canonize in its laws a perversion condemned by God. And here is the the spokesperson for Christ Himself, pretending that okay, well, let's just say that they pass the law. Well, then they at least have to respect the rights of the individual consciences. Where is the condemnation of the evil? Where is the work of the Holy Ghost who has come to convict the world of sin and of justice and of judgment? It's not there in Francis. He will not condemn, condemn perversions because he cannot judge them. But he will condemn capitalism because it is a form of greed. That he can judge. So... Uh, this, this is what he reduces. His answer is reduced to this. Just, after you pass the law, respect the fact that there are dissenters. Um, he goes on here then to answer, a quasi-answer this other question. Uh, As elsewhere, the church in France is experiencing a serious crisis of priestly vocations. How is it possible to manage today with so few priests? A serious problem. Does Francis answer that question? Not really. He talks about this being the work of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of whatever happens in the church. Okay? So he kind of deflects this as though the lack of vocations is the work of the Holy Ghost. It's not unfair to draw that conclusion from what he says. He's certainly implying it. Then he again then he again deep sixes the question he ducks the question of the lack of priests rather than face the actually yes we managed to get rid of all those priests we sure did when I first came to Cincinnati here back in 84 I had a meeting with the then Archbishop of Cincinnati and um, he leaned across uh, the room to me out of his chair and he said well you know there were too many priests before we didn't know what to do with them all he had a program going called For the Harvest at that time to get the lay people to step into the roles of the priests in the parishes because they didn't have enough priests. And when I pointed this out to him, his answer was, well, we had too many priests before. My first thought was, does he realize what he's saying? They had too many priests before, he says. Now they have too few. And I wanted to say to him, well, congratulations, you sure got a, you found the right way to get rid of all those excess priests. As though he expects congratulations for that. But then he said, we didn't know what to do with them all. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the masses they offered? Were these worthless? 
What about the divine office they prayed every day? Was this worthless to him? What about the missionary countries that desperately needed priests? Was this worthless to him? Evidently. He didn't know what to do with all that. Too many masses. Too much praying. Too much divine office. Too many priests. Was that his problem? No, he had too few. But the work of the Spirit, he's bringing the lay people into their proper role, because now they have to rise to the occasion and assume the roles of the priests. In the former society, the former church, well, that was a sickness. We've remedied that. We fixed it by purging the priests, by purging the excess priests from the church. So now the laity can finally, they can take their rightful role of leadership in the church. And practically quoting what he told me back in 84. Francis agrees with him. So Francis turns the question around again. Here's what he says. On the other hand, the opposite danger for the church is clericalism. Having said basically a couple of sentences about the question of too few priests, he then goes on for several sentences talking about the danger of having too many, of clericalism. We see where he's coming from. Enemy of the faith, enemy of Christ, enemy of the priesthood. But he is the first of the Novus Ordo pontiffs who has been from the womb raised in the Novus Ordo, ordained in the Novus Ordo. Um, so even his very priesthood depends upon the Novus Ordo and its ordination. <coughs> it's a new rite of ordination. Draw your own conclusions there. One could go on here, but I'm going to end with this, okay? Because we are coming to the end of his interview here. And I did not intend to go into this so deeply, I'm kind of reviewing it bit by bit, but it's very hard to stop once you, once, once you start, because every sentence practically uh, screams out for an answer or uh, some kind of a clarification from him. Um, he does ask this question. On April 1st, you received Bishop Bernard Fillet, Superior General of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Pius X. Is the reintegration, there we have the word again, the integration, the reintegration of the Lefebvres into the Church again under consideration? To read what Francis says here verbatim, Pope Francis says this, In Buenos Aires, I often spoke with them. They greeted me, asked me on their knees for a blessing. They say they are Catholic. They love the church. Bishop Fillet is a man with whom one can dialogue. That is not the case for other elements who are a little strange, such as Bishop Williamson, or others who have been radicalized. Leaving this aside, I believe, as I said in Argentina, that they are Catholics on the way to full communion. So the Catholics... Yet they're still on the way to full communion. They're not in full communion. Curious. He says it. The Novus Ordo has brought in partial communion. And here he goes so far as to say, well, even those who are not in partial communion, they're Catholics. Okay. I guess that's why the new Code of Canon Law uh, proves of giving their communion wafer to those who are not fully in communion with the Catholic Church. They're, in other words, what in former days the church would have said they are not Catholics. They're not members of the church. 
They are not in communion with the church at all, therefore, because we cannot give them the sacraments, which the church used to would consider in former days to be a, a sacrilege. Now they've institutionalized this in the Novosoro. But he's actually going so far as to say this, that the uh, priestly fraternity of St. Pius X is Catholic on the way to full communion. During this year of mercy, I felt that I needed to authorize their confessors to pardon the sin of abortion. They thanked me for this gesture. Previously, Benedict XVI, whom they greatly respect, had liberalized the use of the Tridentine Rite Mass. So good dialogue and good work are taking place. So speaks Francis. Good dialogue, good work. Some might say, well, you see, Francis is saying it's good that we have the Tridentine Mass. Francis is saying it's good that they are forgiving now in Francis's name with his authorization, okay, sins such as abortion, sins which are actually reserved in the code of can the real can code of canon law to the local ordinary, the bishop. They are authorized to grant forgiveness for these crimes, even reserved, reserved crimes, sins. Uh, in any case, uh, what he's saying here is very revealing about Rome's side, or the, I should say the Vatican's side, of this issue of uh, dealing with Bishop Fallet now, they find that he's a man they can work with, that they can deal with, or that they can dialogue with. This is worrisome. When he says that they're Catholics already, but they're not yet in full communion, but they're on their way to full communion, we should wonder, well, we don't really have to wonder, we, we can imagine what he means by full communion. But let's go on here because there's a next question. Would you be ready to grant them the status of a personal prelature? Francis says, that would be a possible solution. But beforehand, it will be necessary to establish a fundamental agreement with them. The Second Vatican Council has value. We will advance slowly and patiently. Now think about that for a minute, okay? Uh, Bishop Fillet is telling, and Father Schmidtberger is telling, that Rome has dropped the requirements that we accept Vatican II. But here Francis is saying, no, we have to work out a fundamental agreement. And then he talks about the value of second, the Second Vatican Council. Has Rome really said to the uh, authorities and the societies of Pius X, you don't have to accept Vatican II. You can criticize it all you want. You can reject it if you wish. According to that, no, that's not true. Here's what he says, though. We will advance slowly and patiently. Ah, like the serpent, in other words. Shrewd as the serpent. Huh? Guileless, shrewd as a serpent, and guileless as the serpent. He asked the question, uh, the, the interviewer has asked this question. You have already convoked two synods on the family. In your view, has this long process changed the church? Again, a loaded question. Francis actually does address that question, believe it or not. He doesn't come out and say that this process has changed the church. Not explicitly. Here's what he says. 
I think that we all came out of this various processes of the synods different from the way we entered. So he does indicate there's been a change in himself and the individuals. He's including himself here. Including, and he says, including me. He actually says that, including me. In the post-synodal exhortation, that's his Amoris Laetitia that we've talked about, his uh, love in the family, right? the joy of love. I sought to respect the synod to the maximum. You won't find canonical prescriptions there about what one may or may not do, he says, okay? So in his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, he's saying, in respect for the synod, I have not put in my exhortation canonical statements, canonical prescriptions, saying this is to be done, that is not to be done. He avoided that. You won't find canonical prescriptions about what one may or may not do. In other words, he's not using any authority to tell people what to do here. If you read it, he's just kind of opening up possibilities. He's making kind of arguments. Now, you know, you have to give a Francis credit for that. He's right about that. And he's shown this very approach everywhere, except with traditional Catholics, of course, because we need to be brought in to heal to accept certain values that they have, like Vatican II. But when it comes to the Lutheran woman married to the Catholic husband, and she wants to receive communion in a Catholic church, the Novus Ordo Church, with her husband, Francis, oh, I can't answer that question. You have to talk to the theologians. Consult God. He will give you the answer and tell you what you should do. But, I mean, I'm a mere pope. I can't answer that question. Time and time again, he comes back to this kind of thing. He's not the one to judge even, uh, even the practice of homosexuality, practicing, openly practicing homosexuality. He's, he's not competent to make a judgment about these things. In his synodal uh, uh, apostolic exhortation, he doesn't say this may be done and that might be done. The, the word may be here, in other words, as though it's giving his permission to do it. He's merely making arguments in favor of these things, okay? Although I will say this, though, he's not genuine when when he says that categorically because he does say that there should be sex education, yeah, even secular sex education for all the young people in the world. He doesn't exclude anybody. He doesn't exempt anybody from it. Now, that he does say, yeah. But again... Take it as a suggestion from the Pope of the Novus Ordo, okay? Because he's just reading the signs of the times. He's just interpreting the will of the people. And uh, this is, I think, the the capstone on his entire interview here, that he's answering this question, has the synod process changed the church? He says his apostolic exhortation coming from the synod is a serene peaceful reflection on the beauty of love, how to educate the children, to prepare for marriage. It emphasizes responsibilities that could be developed by the Pontifical Council for the laity in the form of guidelines. Beyond this process, we need to think about genuine synodality. And that's a nice word, synodality. He might have even coined that word. I don't know where it's been used before. Genuine synodality, or at least the meaning of Catholic synodality. 
The bishops are cum petro, sub petro. This differs from orthodox synodality, or that of the Greek Catholic churches, where the patriarch only counts as a single voice. The Second Vatican Council set out an ideal of synodal and episcopal communion. This still needs to be developed. Well, something from Vatican II that we need to develop. We need discernment now, of course, they love the word, to develop this new idea here that has not yet developed adequately in the church. Not yet. Now it's up to them, the Novus Ordo, the modernists, to develop these ideas that have suddenly come to term, these seeds that have suddenly germinated within the church. He says this still needs, synodality still needs to be developed, including at the parish level. With respect to what is required, there are parishes that still do not have a pastoral council, nor a council for economic affairs, even though these are obligations under canon law. Synodality is also relevant at this level. What's he talking about here? When the, first, when the synods were in progress, and, and just after they ended, uh, we had the extraordinary synod, then the ordinary synod, okay? Francis was saying that this is how the church should operate. This is how the church should conduct herself, okay? And, and he, was, he was referring to the process that he basically invented for his synods. He brought the lay people in to speak to the bishops who were gathered there. He brought the lay people in to give their street and street-wise experiences in their day-to-day lives to tell them what they're dealing with, okay? The bishops then are supposed to take from the people and what the lay people tell them. They're supposed to discern the deeper message. Where is the faith? Where is it right now? Or as they say in Cincinnati, where is it at right now? It's expressed in the experience, the genuine day-to-day experience of these people living their faith or trying to live their faith in the modern world. They must be consulted by the bishops. Francis insisted on it, that they have this voice because the bishops needed to hear them to do their work as bishops. The bishops then have to kind of distill the message down by committee, by conference, again, by synod. They have to come together and bring together this message and then propose it to Francis. In his role as the modernist Novus Ordo Pontiff is to further distill the message down into where the faith is today. And this is divine revelation now. This is the work of the Spirit now working through the grassroots up. And Francis's role then is to actually interpret this message into a universal expression for the peoples throughout the world. That's his role. He is the interpreter for the the world's peoples in their faith, of living the faith at this moment, the realities of living their faith at this moment. This is a perfect expression of modernism. You look, read the encyclical of St. Pius X on, uh, on modernism, against modernism, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, 1907. You, say, you see how he says that liberty now is an idea that has been introduced to the peoples of the world and it will not get back in the box. You can't resist that now. 
And so just as people in the world want that liberty in, in their civil life, they want their li that liberty in the religious life too. They want that liberty in the church. They want those prerogatives. They want a voice. This is the modernist claim. And the modernists claim you have to give the people this voice. If you don't give the people this voice, there will be a revolution. Because the modern idea of liberty is the modern idea of what religion should be. Um, democracy. They want a democratic religion. A democratic church. The modernist has the idea, again, that the people's experience of God or the divine in their lives is the true expression of who God is at that moment. Where, what true faith is at that moment. It's experienced in themselves. They voice this to the bishops synodally, and the bishops listen to their voice and take it very seriously, almost as though the people were revealing to them the actual faith of the moment. And the bishops have that role then of distilling it down, discerning then the common message here, and proposing it to the Novus Ordo Pontiff, whose role really is to find the necessary formula to express it, to express the faith at that time. That's Francis for you. He's a modernist. In fact, he's the modernist in chief right now. Uh, he is the quintessential modernist, chosen by modernists to represent them. My dear faithful, uh, this is the status of the Novus Ordo Church. What Francis is actually talking about here, in any, by any other name, uh, would not be a rose. This is the way Marxists organize society. It's Soviets, committees, Soviets. Marxist society was supposed to be set up in Russia and wherever else it is set up by establishing workers' committees of the common people. The committees of the plumbers and the steel workers and the farmers, they are supposed to have their Soviets that meet at the grassroots level. Their voices then are passed on to uh, higher and higher levels of the party until it reaches the secretary of the Communist Party, who then has the role of being a kind of vicar of all of these, these voices joined in their synods, their Soviets. And he will pronounce infallibly for the, for the, for the Marxists, uh, expressing perfectly in the formula that, that is the perfect expression of the time of the people's desires, see, of the people's wishes, uh, where, they're, where they're at, where they are in their thinking at that time. This has the value of the equivalent of divine revelation where there is no God. Um, uh, this is the worst form of tyranny of all. We have to realize where this is coming from. We also have to realize where it's going. I shudder for the society's advice the 10th for the fate that awaits it if they decide to enter full communion with this, with a new order. Well, uh, Father Jenkins, again, I, I uh, pray for you. May God bless you all. Thank you. Good night.